Hello and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to look at the glory of God. Um, as usual, the glory of God is revealed in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. Um, he was the human representative of the Godhead that we could physically see and touch and use as our example. And um, today we will look in the book of John, Revelation, Philippians, and 2 Corinthians. So without any further ado, let's take a look at the glory of God. All right. And like I said, we are going to start in the book of John. We are going to be in John chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Then, beginning this, excuse me, this beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. We're going to look at the notes here. Um, for verse 4 and 11. The title woman does not convey a lack of respect or affection. It was used in addressing people of rank. Some think Mary wanted Jesus to take this occasion to present himself openly as the Messiah. However, it is not necessary to suppose she meant anything more than that Jesus assist her in arranging for the supplying of the wine by natural means since many believe this was probably a relative's wedding. And then for verse 11 there, As a sign, the miracle was not meant to draw attention to himself. Rather, it was intended to demonstrate the power and glory of Jesus. All the miracles related by John testify to the deity of Christ. So that word glory there is translated doxa, and it says, compare doxology, paradox, heterodoxy, and orthodoxy. 
originally an opinion or estimation in which one is held. The word came to denote the reputation, good standing, and esteem given to a person. It progressed to honor or glory given to peoples, nations, and individuals. The New Testament doxa becomes splendor, radiance, and majesty centered in Jesus. Here, doxa is the majestic, absolute perfection residing in Christ and evidenced by the miracles he performed. So that whole story there, the whole water into wine thing, I mean, I don't know. People go off on different, you know, arguments about they use it as is it acceptable to drink alcohol because Jesus made wine, stuff like that. Um, I'm not going to even touch on that stuff. Look, alcohol, that's your own personal decision. Um, you know, frankly, we're called to be sober minded. So if you drink alcohol, you're not to drink it in excess to where you're drunk. And we all know the difference between the two. Me, I'm 41 years old. When I was younger, I drank in excess till I was drunk. I would drink until I had a headache and I had a bad hangover the next day. Nothing enjoyable comes from that. There's no godliness in that. There is um, no, I, I, many, many people can testify and say you usually don't make a good decision when you're drunk. It's usually full of bad decisions. Um, it's very evidenced by the drunk driving that occurs that kills people every year, as well as the just look out, look at the clubs, look at the streets where people are fighting at early hours in the morning after drinking all night. So, again, typically, you know, there's it's one thing to have a glass of wine with a nice meal, a beer with a nice burger, something like that. It's another thing to sit and drink in excess. I'm not going to get up here on a soapbox and tell people what to do. I personally, at this point in my life, do not consume any alcohol or have any substances in my body that alter my state of mind. I prefer to be sober-minded, and it's just for my own personal choice. I Again, I'm not saying that's what people should or shouldn't do. It's an individual choice. Um, you do things as the Holy Spirit leads you, you know? Um, again, me personally, I have a bit of a personality to want to really, if I drink, I like to drink. And um, that's just something that I see myself as being a, a wiser person to avoid altogether. And it's just something in my life at this point, I in particular don't enjoy to do. Um, with my career and job in particular, I could never get a DUI and would never even entertain that. So that's another thing that keeps me clearly away from drinking. So I don't mean to go off on a little tangent on that. But again, I mean, we're looking at Jesus turning water into wine. And also people will, you know, they go back and forth. Was it wine? Was it grape juice? Was it alcoholic? You do your own study on that. You do your own prayer. You do your own personal conviction. I am not here to tell people what they should do as far as that goes. I don't know that this story in particular, I have not studied it deeply. I will say, I think it's interesting though, The as I was reading this just now, I believe there may be some more spiritual, deeper implication to this, which is a pretty cool thing when you see how the wine um, typically, again, is usually served. The best wine is served in the beginning of the wedding, and then as the people drink and consume, 
the wine and their their palate gets a little um, used to it, as well as they probably get a little, you know, drunk, quote unquote, whatever you want to call it. Then they serve the lesser wine at the end of the, the feast. And understand, too, this wedding, this this culture, I believe the, these weddings and still in the Middle East, this is common. Um, you know, a wedding here in America, you know, people do it these days on a Friday afternoon to save a few hundred or thousand bucks on the, the venue and the food. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. These weddings were days, sometimes week long ceremonies. We're talking about, you know, an extended celebration of a, two people coming together for life. And it says, too, it's, it was a more special thing to these people than what, you know, we see around us, which everything from, you know, drive through weddings in Vegas to shotgun weddings to, you know, whatever you want to call them. But um, typically our Western culture, it's all about, um, you know, saving time, saving money. It's, it's, but it's truly meant to be a celebration. And that's what these, these celebrations and times were. And my point with the whole spiritual implication would be, I would I'm going to do a deeper study and pray because there's something to be said about the new wine versus the old wine and the um, the people, I believe. Um, and it's just something I've just turned uh, I'm turning a spiritual eye open to right now. But there's something about Jesus serving the best wine last. And I, I really, um, I look at the timeline of history, for example, you know, right now we are in the age of the church. We are in the last days because we are now awaiting the second coming of Christ. So, you know, for example, just throwing this out there is just a thought. Um, maybe that best wine may be those tribulation saints, who are martyred for Christ when there's a possibility that they are believers without even having somehow the Holy Spirit here, which people believe that, you know, the um, the uh, restrainer when he's pulled away may be the Holy Spirit. So imagining walking around in those end times that last seven or three and a half years, whenever, you know, we're whatever happens in that future time that um, those end days, true end days and true end years of the world, who knows, maybe the best wine and those tribulation saints are truly exemplary to everyone because they actually held the faith to martyrdom with very little physical or, or, I mean, you're talking about days that are going to be darker than dark. These are the end days. These are the darkest times. This is the pinnacle of the Antichrist and Satan's. This is his final hurrah, if you will. And those end time believers, there's something special about them. And if you, when we look at Revelation at a point, and if you ever read Revelation, you'll see that there is, you know, end times tribulation saints saying to God, when will you avenge our blood? You know, I mean, even the timing of everything. I mean, this is the revelation is very spiritual. It's oh, my goodness. I mean, it's just full of 
imagery that I we can't even comprehend. I'm sure John, when he was confined to the island of Patmos, writing, recording what he was being shown by the Holy Spirit was probably just, you know, I, I could only imagine what he was thinking. And us now living in these times when, you know, Jesus could, all of the things that are in Revelation can be fulfilled right now. So, you know, they're sobering times and they're times to be aware of the word of God so that you are not deceived and we must press on and run the race and finish strong. So, all right. So that's our look at John chapter two, verses one to 11. And we did look at that word defined there, the glory of God again, doxa. That's the first of two um, versions of the word glory we're going to look at in this study. But um, let's flip back now to John chapter 1, verse 14. And this is just, I, I love the opening of John, this first chapter. He's just so eloquent in the way he talks about Jesus and Jesus being the word of God. And we're going to look at that. So, here we go. The word becomes flesh is the title that my New King James Version uh, Spirit-Filled Life Bible gives this section. And again, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that the note down here for um, chapter 14 of verse or of chapter one of John says dwelt literally means tabernacled. The analogy is that of the tabernacle in the wilderness when God pitched his tent among those of the Hebrews and manifested his glory there. So Jesus identified himself with humanity by becoming flesh and we beheld his glory. It's just incredible when you think about Jesus leaving heaven, stepping down, and coming to the earth to be the, 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 the sacrificial lamb for all of us, for our sin, for our imperfection, for the things that you know we do in darkness, the shameful deeds that we do. He knows it all. You know, he forgives you. He came here to forgive you. So be blunt with God when you're struggling with something, when you need to pray, when you need to repent, pray specifically, God, take this, whatever it is away. God's not bashful. Lose your religion. This is about a relationship. Look, Jesus was tempted in every way and he resisted in every way. He lived the perfect life so that we can be forgiven for all the blemishes, all the things we do in life, all of our shortcomings. He loves us. He came down to do that. Don't be shy. Don't be bashful. Embrace the Lord as he embraces you because you only loved him. You only love him now because he loved you first. Don't forget that you were, we are called out of this world by the Holy Spirit, by him. And that's powerful. That's absolutely incredible. The God we serve, the living God is just amazing.
absolutely amazing. So we're going to actually, speaking of Revelation, we're going to hop over to Revelation. And we're going to look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. I love this description of Christ just coming back in, in during the last days. Um, I don't know how this is all going to work. I love the book of Revelation. We're just finishing it up now at the church I go to. And I just, I, I love it because as, as hard as it is to understand and comprehend and grasp when you really study it, look at the book of Daniel. Um, there's just a lot of parallels there. I would highly advise you to get a study Bible before you even open Revelation. Don't even, if you just try to read Revelation on just what's there in front of you, you are going to, your head will be spinning. You will not. You will not grasp any of what John's talking about because you need to understand all of the cross-reference and especially have some explanation here as to what exactly is going on because it all adds up. It all makes sense. It's all in future tense. It is has not happened yet. These are all prophetic events that are to come. These are things to come things that have not happened already. Some false theologians will tell you the book of Revelation was fulfilled um, when Rome fell, yada, yada, yada. That's, look, there, you can read Revelation. This, <laughs> this particular passage we're going to read right now has not happened yet. I, I, I make that in capital letters. So with the foolish, liberal, um, uh, uh, what, 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 what do we call it? Um, the allegorical interpretations that these lost theologians may try to sell you about this has already happened. It has not already happened because let's look at this right here. Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 to 16. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his head were on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I just can't wait for that time, that day, whatever it is. It's going to be glorious. We're going to look here at the notes on chapter Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. The white horse symbolizes victory. And we're looking at this tied into the glory of God because, again, we've read in John where Jesus is the word of God. And take note, 
again in verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So looking again at the notes here, the white horse symbolizes victory. Faithful and true describes Jesus, whose final victory in the war to come serves only to be make to make clear to those who dwell on the earth what has been seen by the eyes of faith in his cross and resurrection. His standards and methods are qualitatively different from those of the dragon and his allies. He judges in the law court, not on the battlefield. He conducts a spiritual warfare, not a military one. His eyes, many crowns represent unlimited diadems of sovereign authority, far surpassing the limited number usurped by the dragon and the beast. No one knew, that name that no one knew, the fullness of the person of Jesus is beyond human comprehension. Quickly, I once heard a, a, a cool um, sermon about the book of Revelation, but I mean, the book of Revelation is all about the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. The whole world is going to at once see Jesus Christ for who he is. And the, the guy who was uh, giving the sermon, he, he described it as there used to be a show, <clears throat> excuse me, called, I forget, it's some house makeover show. And they used to basically, they would have a bus and it would hot, you know, they would show the old house and then they would redo and re-renovate re and remodel the whole house. And they would hide what the house looked like. And then once that um, bus pulled away, they would see the transformed house. And the reactions were always, you know, tears and just shock and awe. That is the, what revelation is. That's what's to come with this, with all of the events described in revelation. It all again focuses on Jesus, which that's what the entire Bible is. It's the revelation of the person of God, the word of God, Jesus Christ. I, I don't, again, when I start to talk about this and I think about the triune Godhead and the Trinity, as much as I can start to understand it, there's a beautiful, just a nature to God that is incomprehensible. I can't fathom the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Truly, I can't wrap my human mind around what God is comprised of and how he functions and operates. It's it's a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. And it's just something we won't understand until we get there. You know, I mean, God gives me understanding here and there, but ultimately, you know, I mean, there's always a beautiful mystery to God. And this isn't any mystery. I'm not talking about mysticism or any any ridiculous hidden knowledge. I'm just talking about our human minds can't comprehend, fully comprehend that is our creator. He gives us glimpses of who he is through his word and through his, the miracles and through the Holy Spirit. But, you know, comprehending, truly digging in and understanding who God is, again, it's a mystery that we will only know when we see him. And I just, I'm in awe just now. I just can't imagine. I, I, 
I have visions in my head of what heaven can look like and the throne rooms and the, the amazing, um, you know, the, the different events that are described in different places, the, the mansions, the kingdom of God is described in certain parts of the Bible and the new Jerusalem's described, but these are just words. These are just things that we can just, again, just kind of understand through, you know, examples and um, things that God gives us, but they're just bits and pieces of truly what heaven and this coming reality that we are going to experience with God. And when we understand who God is, that's going to be the true uh, revelation, if you will, of Jesus Christ. And I pray that everybody uh, listening to this will experience that along with myself and the other members of uh, the body of Christ. So let's pick up here at the note for verse 13 in Revelation chapter 19. Christ's robe is dipped in his atoning blood, not that of his enemies, since the battle has not yet taken place. The word of God. Jesus reveals the character of and purpose of God. The armies in heaven are glorified saints described in similar terms of purity in verse 8. This is best seen as the time of the rapture, as the church triumphant rises to meet Christ and the other returning saints who have died in the air at his return. The raptured saints shall then immediately return to earth with Christ and the others. The sword coming out of his mouth is the word of God. Um, and then it just goes on and notes different things. Um, and that's that's a literal interpretation. That's one interpretation. But we are going to look at the dispensational dispensational ter interpretation, excuse me, which is more of along the lines of what I subscribe to as long as well as many other um, parts of the body. And it basically says in verses six to 11, Christ leaves heaven with his saints and angels prior to his destruction of the beast's forces. He fights for Israel to consummate the battle of Armageddon. Then it says, see Daniel. Again, look, look around at the book of Daniel. Again, when you're reading Revelation, you need to study Bible. You need some cross-reference. You need to really have some uh, foundational understanding of different parts of the Bible to kind of harken back to. And then once you do, and you need to obviously be full of the Holy Spirit, um, people that just read the Bible as a book and then try to interpret it, no wonder they're lost in the sauce because they have no idea what they're talking about because they don't even have the Holy Spirit. They're just, you know, just, I don't know. Um, uh, theologians, religious people, whatever you want to call them. Um, but when you're alive in Christ, when you're full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will reveal to you and guide to you exactly what he's talking about and what all this means. So finishing up that dispensational interpretation, Christ's return to earth, in, as noted in verse 11, is seen as literal and premillennial. It is apocalyptic necessary to inaugurate the next phase of his reign. Although the symbolic nature of the Bible's prophetic language makes it difficult to determine exactly what will be transpiring on earth, it is clear Antichrist will be rolling with destruction, and Christ's return will destroy him. Amen. Look forward to seeing that too. 
So we are going to flip back now to the book of John. And I mentioned Jesus being the word of God and John's amazing description of Jesus being the word and the glory of God. So let's look here at John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That might, I mean, that's definitely one of my top five verses in the Bible. But again, I just love the, the confirmation, the affirmation of who Jesus is right there. I mean, it's about 20 words in the English language, but it is saying so much that it's not to be skimmed over or taken lightly. As noted here in my uh, Spirit-Filled Life New King James Version Bible, for the note for John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, an allusion to Genesis 1, 1, with the intention of linking Jesus, the word, with the God of creation. The event of Jesus's incarnation, therefore, had cosmic significance. The word is Jesus Christ, the eternal, ultimate expression of God. In the Old Testament, God spoke the world into existence. In the gospel, God spoke his final word through the living word, his son. The phrase, the word was God, attributes deity to the word without defining all of the Godhead as the word. Pretty cool note there and really cool to look at that um, whole idea of Jesus being the word of God, revealed word. Um, it's not to be taken lightly. And again, we've looked at this before, but um, let's just look at that. That word, word in um, the Greek means logos, and it means a transmission of thought, communication, a word of explanation, an utterance, discourse, divine revelation, talk, statement, instruction, an oracle, divine promise, divine doctrine divine declaration. Jesus is the living Logos. The Bible is the written Logos. And the Holy Spirit utters the spoken Logos. Absolutely incredible stuff. The Trinity is sort of seen there. Jesus is the living word. The Bible being the word of God as the written Logos. And then the Holy Spirit is alive and well in us and on this earth speaking every day, all the time, through those that are called and those that teach and preach. And um, the logos, when I think of that word, um, obviously it's definitely, um, I believe we got our English word logo from that word. And, um, you know, when you think of a logo, you think of exactly that. You think of something you see that represents, um, you know, an idea or a thought right away. The simplest one being the Nike swoosh, the check, you know, right when you see that, that whole brand is, you know, fills your mind and, you know, you think of exactly what they are known for, which is, you know, pretty quality athletic gear. Um, so, well, quality for the most part. I bought a pair of Nikes or two that have been uh, falling apart pretty quickly and easily, frankly. <laughs> There's definitely better brands out there you can buy at this point. But 
Nah, it's just a side note, not to knock Nike. They've, you know, they are what they are. But again, point being the logos is that visual representation of something and what better, you know, visual representation of God than Jesus Christ, who exactly is the word of God, the living word in all the glory of God. So we got a couple verses here left that we're going to look at for this section of the glory of God. And we are going to flip over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And then... Um, Pretty cool section here. The In my uh, Spirit-Filled Life, New King James Version Bible, they have little notes and some little sections here called Kingdom Dynamics. And we are going to look at the Kingdom Dynamic for this verse, Philippians 4, chapter 19. Do whatever he says, then you will prosper. God's prosperity. This verse tells us that God will supply our need by a distinct and definite measure according to his riches. In declaring this, God makes clear that he is not stingy when it comes to provision. His riches encompass all of creation. So there is nothing you need that he cannot provide. Do not misquote or misread this verse. It does not say that God shall supply your needs. It says that he shall supply your need. That includes Everything at once and all of it is adequately covered because he does it according to his riches. This verse cannot be lifted out of the Bible. It underwrites and relates to everything the scriptures tell us to do in order to prosper. If we do what the Bible tells us to do, then God will provide abundantly. So, let me just quickly say, this is not health and wealth. This is not prosperity gospel per se. This is God supplying our need at the time in which we have that need that has to be met. Take note, it doesn't say our wants. We have plenty of wants in our world, especially in our Western American society, but our basic needs are met by God as long as we honor him and do his will and live according to how he calls each and every one of us into our individual wills that he has for each of our lives. I can definitely testify to this. I have had many times in my life when I literally had need. Um, so for example, financial need. Uh, and I mean, you would be amazed at how God has literally blessed me with the exact amount that I needed, not when I wanted, not when I wanted to run out and waste some some lump sum of money on something that was frivolous. But when I had true need, I can personally testify 100%. God has met those needs when needed. In ways that are just miraculous, and like I said, I mean, down sometimes to the penny that it has been there. And it's cool because, I mean, I know in my heart that was God's provision and God's prosperity because 
He opened his, the windows of heaven and provided when I needed. And again, this isn't about wants. This is about need. And this is how God takes care of his people and provides for those he loves because that's who God is. Look, if we being evil fathers and parents and people know how to provide for our children and their needs, how much more the Father in heaven that he provides for us. He's good. He's righteous. He's just. He is love. He's the quintessential meaning of love. Look at what he did. Look at the sacrifice he made, sending Jesus, his only begotten son, his first fruit to die, be slain for us, shed his blood to purchase us. He sends his Holy Spirit to strengthen and undergird us and uplift us. So look, if we know how to provide, even when we're out of, when we're not saved, yet we still have that intuition to provide. And I'm talking obviously good parents, not some deadbeats or whatever you want to call them, but I'm talking good people, you know, quote unquote good, whatever you want to call that. But I'm talking about basic, normal human beings that know how to provide for their children. Think about how much more God not only wants to do that, but delights in doing that for those that love him and those that are called and part of his family. So we'll finish up this little portion here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Again, looking at the glory of God. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the note here basically says, um, well, actually, I'm not even going to read the note because I think that says just about all. So again, knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So seek the Lord diligently those who diligently seek the face of God, it pleases God to not only answer that, but also reveal himself. And just look at Jesus Christ. Look at the glory of God in all that he was when he was here on earth. And ultimately why he was here, that amazing act of becoming the living sacrifice for all of us, being tortured, brutally murdered, and the meekness and humility that Jesus exemplified cannot be understated. Again, remember, he knew all. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And the thought of him going through that persecution, that death, him carrying his cross to that site in which he knew he would be crucified and just being that silent lamb before the shearers. I mean, you just really don't get any more glorious than our living God, the only living God, the creator of all you see around us, the one who we are about to celebrate the birth and his coming to this earth. It's just mind-blowing. The glory of God is amazing. It's incomprehensible. And just, I, I, I'm, as you can hear, I'm 
literally speechless. So that concludes part one of our look at the glory of God. God bless and have a great day.